The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Our guest today, Chris Palmer, has for over 25 years been devoting his life and work to filming the environment, nature, and wildlife throughout the world. He joins in discussion today to elaborate on the challenging times ahead for the natural world and humanity with reference to his latest book, Shooting in the Wild. My guest today has spent more than 25 years exploring our natural environment, producing over 300 hours of outstanding filmic entertainment. He joined the full-time faculty at American University in August 2004 as a distinguished film producer in residence and founded the Center for Environmental Filmmaking, which he now directs. He's also worked with the finest film actors and experts in the environmental arena, seeking to represent with ethical and moral fortitude the beauty remaining in our natural world. Chris continues to produce films, give speeches, and conduct workshops across the country. His latest book, Shooting in the Wild, is an industry-led insider's account of the shifting and critical goals in the protection of our failing ecosystems and fragile natural world. Howard Hall, a fellow wildlife filmmaker, recently was quoted, Shooting in the Wild is a fascinating account of the physical and ethical challenges facing today's wildlife filmmakers. It's essential reading for anyone interested in the natural world and nature film. Chris Palmer, welcome to you today. Thank you. Nice to be with you, David. It is such a pleasure, Chris. Congratulations on your book, uh, Shooting in the Wild. What a wonderful piece this is. Uh, it must have taken you some time to, to write that. It's uh, it very in-depth. It in took depth. me 10 years uh, I, I to thought it might it. It's based on about 30 years of working, producing wildlife films. And, and uh, the subtitle says, says it all, an insider's account of making movies in the animal kingdom. I think, David, people will be shocked by what they find out from the book about what goes on behind the scenes. Before we start, could I just, for the, for the listeners, ask you to give me just a one or two minute brief summary of life at the moment, work at the moment? Yes, I'm a professor. I work at American University. I founded the Center for Environmental Filmmaking there. We produce films and hold events and, and uh, do all sorts of interesting things. And um, I've spent the last 30 years producing wildlife and environmental films for non-profit organizations like the National Audubon Society, where I worked for 15 years, and the National Wildlife Federation, where I worked for um, 10 years. I produce uh, IMAX films like Whales and, and Dolphins. I work for McGilvery Freeman Films, which is the largest producer of IMAX films in the world. We produced Everest and the Living Sea uh, and Coral Reef Adventure. So some of your listeners may have heard of some of those or seen some of those IMAX films. My whole... Uh, my whole um, uh, professional life, David, is devoted to environmental protection and conservation. So the reason I make films is to uh, promote greater awareness of the, of, the, of the environment. Well, I think the Living Sea is possibly one of my 
most favorite pieces and and actually chris when i visited uh, hawaii about uh, two years ago it was showing at the imax and that work including the narration by mera streep and of course the music by sting is just absolutely wonderful yes and, perhaps... and the person who gets the credit for the film of course is my friend and colleague greg mcgilvery who directed it and uh, and produced it i'm very proud to be his colleague and to support his work Cuttlefish is just one surprise in the most colorful carnival of life on the planet. The ocean is home to a far wider diversity of life forms than anywhere else on Earth. What I'd like to do is, as I chart with all my guests, uh, to really provide listeners with a good visibility uh, before we hit on the subject of your latest book, if I may, mm -hmm. is go back to your childhood. I'd, sure. I'd, I'd like to uh, chart your life, uh, see where you've come from, and obviously um, I know that you were born in Hong Kong and then you spent time in England. Could you g give me a background of uh, what it was like in England then, what uh, memories that you, you bring from that country? Yeah, it was um, tough. We were not a rich family. We were sort of uh, middle class, and um, and uh, and the, you know I, the thing in it, thing that's, uh, that's interesting, I think, um, David, is that I had no interest in the environment growing up. We never discussed it. My parents never discussed birds or animals or wildlife. Um, so no, there was nothing in my childhood which would lead you to think that I would uh, become an environmentalist. Later in my life, uh, we were very concerned with just surviving and uh, getting through and uh, making do. And I went to a very tough boarding school uh, where there was a lot of corporal punishment and and uh, things like fagging, which is a word your listeners won't even know. It, but it course, sounds like it was back in the dark ages. No, Chris. it was back in the dark <laughs> ages. Yeah, no, it was horrible. And um, so we had no. So you know the the. It, the, the the environmental issues were just non they just weren't there didn't they weren't they didn't exist for us um, at all but i do have a couple of memories that are relevant to this which is one is um uh, when I was um, about 11 years old, which was in 1958, I watched the Disney film White Wilderness. Now, this is, I think, the first time I'd ever seen a film about nature, at least consciously. And and um, uh, one scene in there stuck in my mind. Of uh, You've probably seen the film, but is that you see a cute little bear... Uh, cub yes. uh, climbing up a mountain and it loses and everyone's laughing it's so funny and it loses its footing on a steep snow-covered mountainside and it begins to fall and it gains speed and it's, it's comical it's, it's, it's a slapstick thing and so people are laughing and, I and remember they, and of course you look at it and you think well this is incredible how did this photographer get this scene that's just amazing they must have waited there for weeks and months to wait to get this scene and uh, the bear cub gains more speed and, and after a bit it's just falling just out totally out of control down the field and it eventually stops um, after falling against and banging into hard, banging hard into into rocks and you know the audience laughs because uh, we all assumed it was totally natural and authentic um, but 
Uh, one, of course, I found out uh, more recently is that a whole scene was staged top to bottom, including the use of a man-made artificial mountain. It was done inside a stage. The animal was captive. And there was nothing authentic or genuine about it at all. And that's one of the things that I talk about in my book, Shooting in the Wild, is what goes on behind behind the scenes. And let, David, may I just mention one, one other story about my, since you're asking about my childhood. When I was a teenager growing up in England, Life magazine uh, carried a dramatic prize-winning sequence of photographs showing a leopard hunting a baboon. And it was thrilling and, and dramatic. The final picture showed the leopard crushing the baboon's skull in its jaws. Now, again, later, I found out more recently that was, uh, that was all shown, to, that was all staged, and the leopard was captive, um, the, um, and the baboon was captive and, of course, terrified. And, um, and such cruel staging and manipulation is, is grossly unethical in three ways. I mean, viewers are deceived. They think they're watching something authentic when, in fact, it's all, uh, it's all fabricated. Animals are abused, obviously. And thirdly, the photographer competes unfairly with those who wait patiently for weeks or even months to get a similar but real shot. So those, sorry, so we ask about my childhood, and, and although we never talked about conservation growing up with my family, never talked about animals or birds or Africa or anything like that, uh, didn't have, just never came up. There were these couple of things that happened when I was growing up that, that sort of reverberate today, especially as, as I've written my book. When, uh, wh where did you live in England, Chris? In Bath, in the West Country, beautiful my part of the country, Chris. about 120 <laughs> miles west of London, famous for its Roman remains and its Roman bars, the hot water there, and of course the Georgian architecture. Chris, you're, you're, now you're freaking me out. I lived in Larkhall for seven years. Well, I, w I lived in Larkhall. Did you really? I lived in Isn't, Is it not a small world? It is a very small world. I came, we came back, I was born in Hong Kong, we came back in, the, in that harsh winter of 48. Um, um, we were in, uh, in uh, Gosport in, near Portsmouth for a few months, and then my five parents bought their first house in uh, Lark Hall um, in Bath, um, and we lived there for two or three years before moving across the Good city Lord. to Bloomfield Avenue. Good Lord, yes. We were, we were in Burford East for many years, and, yeah. and of course the wonderful Royal Photographic Society, of which I was a fellow, I, I think I've lapsed in my, mm -hmm. my membership, but that mm -hmm. was always there, and of course it was very sad that that uh, disappeared, as it yeah. were. Uh, the first time, though, Chris, that you spent some time at the coast. Do you remember that? Did you have holidays going yes, to the coast? We yes, we went down to, uh, we took holidays, went down to, down to Loo, which is a famous shark hunting. As people didn't realize this, there are, there are sharks everywhere, or and they're being depleted, of course, for their fins, but this is back in the 50s, and there was uh, Lou was the center of shark, um, shark fishing in the in the English Channel, and so I, I spent uh, I spent weeks there, looking every day, seeing the boats come back full of uh, full of sharks. Now, now of course, we at the time I never thought about it, but now of course we know this is a major problem because so, shark uh, shark populations are are plummeting. Do you know? I I thought that I knew it all when it came to England. Whereabouts is Lou? It's Lou, which is spelled L, uh, I think L-O-O-E, I believe. Um, it's um, 
between um, uh, it's in it's in uh, Devon. It's on the coast of De- in, in so um, near Weymouth. Beautiful country. Mm-hmm. Beautiful country. So, eleven years old was possibly a catalyst uh, for your mindset in discovering the beauty of nature and, mm-hmm. and of animals. When you took your holidays down to the seascape, mm-hmm. was that a romantic experience? Looking back on it, was that part of this? Yeah, journey? I mean, I think I think the watching the sea is ever moving always fascinating uh yes i think it's hard not to fall in love with the sea and in fact i went later on into the navy my father came out of the navy he was in the navy for 50 years ended up as an admiral started out as a working class kid and made his way up to become an admiral which is in english society in the first part of the 20th century was a remarkable achievement because you just didn't jump from being a lower class into the middle class and so i've always loved to love the sea and i when i was 19 i first went to sea i joined the british navy I went, at 17, I joined the British Navy and, and went to sea. In fact, I crossed the Atlantic in the in HMS Bulwark in, uh, in uh, when I was about 21. And to see those the swell, you know, the ocean swelling and and uh, it's the, it's fierceness and the size of the uh, what the waves. No, it's just uh, the the sea is endlessly fascinating to me. And I love to take my guests back in retrospect, uh, getting their feelings about childhood, because I do believe that childhood really does provide us the, the grassroots foundation for all of us, Chris. It really does. I quite I quite agree. My father and mother were hardworking, very interested in education, didn't know much about parenting, but they were they, they knew uh, the, the importance of being educated and working hard and, and I and I and I picked that up from them and I'm very grateful to them. And I'm going to cover these areas briefly because we really want to do to get to the crux of the matter. Uh, ways of life. I remember Growing up in the 60s, the ways of life were so different. I'm sure they were different everywhere in the world. You, you still had manufacturing, industry, the old crafts, the old ways. You had apprenticeships. Have you been back to England, to the similar areas? What are your feelings about the way that the world has changed now? Well, um, I've, 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 I have not been back. I go back infrequently. But I think, um, I think there are several things that have, that have changed. I mean, one of them is that, uh, is the, you know, in, when I was growing up, uh, every, there was very much command and control. You did what your boss said. When your father said something, you did it. It was very, very much more authority, you know, there are authority figures everywhere. And um, things were run in a sort of a, you know, you had to do what you were told. And it, it, there was much of the military sense of things. Nowadays, that's completely changed. Oh, my gosh, I'm a professor. I get assessed by my students on my performance, which is fine. But if, if my father was still alive, and you, you would say to him, oh, students now assess their professors. And, and in fact, the, the professors salary is influenced by what the students say about them, he would find that incomprehensible. He would find that, what the, he would just find that just beyond belief, crazy, you know, so there's, there's been a growth in, uh, in if you like, in, in, democ- in democracy, which has its uh, negatives and its, and its good side. 
My schooling, Chris, uh, back in Salisbury in England was at the Swan School and uh, the headmistress was a, a massive lady back then. Mm-hmm. Uh, remembering back, I, I think she was about 10 foot tall and of course her brother was uh, the, the great uh, cricket player E.W. Swanton. Oh, and yes. uh, it, it really was a different time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. I'd like to move on to your late teens and into your early adulthood. You attended University College London, and I'm particularly interested in your decision to go into mechanical engineering. Well, it was because I had no idea what I wanted to do. I was very immature. I had no sense of what I wanted to do with my life. Um, I was completely lost. Uh, my father was an engineer, and I just, it just, I just followed that path because I had no idea what to do. I was uh, I was uh, just uh, completely uh, befuddled by the whole world and uh, struggling to grow up and uh, and and going into the Navy and going into engineering gave me some structure uh, where I could grow up and, and begin to think for myself. So I went into mechanical engineering not through, a, not through an open thought-out choice but simply because I, it was the path of least uh, resistance, and I was good at it. I was, I was, I worked hard, and I was good at it. But I didn't love it. I was never passionate about engineering, even though my first two degrees were in engineering. And it was only when I went to Harvard to study public policy, economics, and things like that, that I began to uh, w- wake up intellectually and think, "Oh my gosh, this is a subject I could love." You know, not, not designing ships, but but designing, uh, but but you know how the navy. You should manage its ships. It was. It was. It was so. So I was. Um, so the engineering was a kind of a, 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 a in a way, a, a, a mistake. I shouldn't have. I shouldn't have done it. And I admire your honesty because I think that most of us at that age go through that period. The only thing that that I remember that was so different back in those days, Chris, of course, was that you did have the apprenticeships. You yeah. You could go through school and you could have woodwork and engineering yeah. and metal making and. Yeah. But you. you uh, exactly. Unfortunately, these days you don't. Have have that but i always think that there is a subconscious that sits within all of us and obviously at a young age you enjoyed the sea so much you Mm -hmm. you had enjoyed those lovely holidays with Mm -hmm. the family Mm -hmm. now you go from mechanical engineering and you do go into ocean engineering Mm -hmm. now what was that i mean because yes there's a synergy but now you're talking ocean engineering what looking back well it was it was we got a family history related to the oceans. My forebears come out of out of d- duckyard work. My father was a was in the British Navy. Um, I, I, you know, we all loved ships, and so it was natural. Having done a, a degree in mechanical engineering, then when I came to do my master's to go into ocean engineering, all the time I realized that it didn't really set me alight. It didn't. It didn't. So it wasn't something I was passionate about, but I was good at it, and and uh, it was moderately. Uh, moderately um, interest, interesting, but I, when I when I got to Harvard after my first of my third degree and started learning about economics and public policies, then then I became I became then I realized that's what the area I needed to to um, to uh, fo- to focus on. And of course, as you will have seen with our notes that we shared together, I do mention Harvard. Now you leave uh, Great Britain, you move to the states, you go into Harvard. That academia. That environment, that consciousness, that different way of learning, of uh, learning the, the depth of research, how did that impact you? Well, the, the main impact 
impact that Harvard had on me, I think, was that I met my wife, Gail, there, September 23rd, 1972. We sat next to each other at the orientation session, and we've now been married 35 years, and she's a great person. And so that was the biggest impact Harvard had on me, giving me a lifetime, and, and you know, introducing me to my lifetime partner. But in terms of academics, um, I just loved the uh, writing and the thinking and the discussions. I just loved it, and it made me begin to reflect on my whole life, what I wanted to do, and I realized I did not want to spend my life in the British Navy designing warships, which is what I've been trained to do, <laughs> that in fact I want to spend my life running for public office or, 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 uh, or um, writing books or talking about, uh, you know, how, you know, it was about this time that we had the embargo, um, remember that in the mid-70s, and yes, so I became yes. very interested in energy issues, uh, which, was, which, was, which grew naturally from my interest in, 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 uh, in engineering and economics, so it was a natural segue into energy policy, and, um, and that's, what I, that's what I realized I wanted to spend my life, my time doing, my life doing is working, becoming a policy one, thinking through what it meant, you know, how do you, how do we move into an economic Economic, uh, economic infrastructure, which is, which is driven by clean energy and renewable energies and conservation rather than uh, dirty uh, you know, uh, oil, oil and uh, coal. That is interesting, Chris. You're the first one to tell me that because a lot of my programs are with uh, sustainability experts, obviously been involved with Dr. Sylvia Earle in the past and, yep. and the wonderful, wonderful Dr. Uh, Jerry Schubel at the, uh, the aquarium. Yep. And you know, another program that I shared with Tom Bowman, who is a communication expert in sustainability, mm-hmm. we yeah. were talking about this as to when people really become aware of the environmental impact. And, and we were talking around the, the very early 90s, but you were talking about it earlier. You were talking about that maybe yourself personally becoming aware of it in the 70s. Yeah, because uh, 1972 was uh, was uh, the first Earth Day run by uh, Dennis um, Hayes, um, and um, the um, you know then we were very concerned with what we could see. The, the the rivers caught on fire, the air was dirty. Los Angeles had had smog. Um, you know, we animals were being were were being depleted. You could see the the shopping malls going up and taking wild lands away from animals that. So you could actually see uh, there was a palpable, tangible um, sense of what was happening. And so um, people got together in the 70s and made, you know, that's when we created EPA, passed landmark legislation like the Clean Water Act. And so a, a lot was happening. Of course, what now is the problem, and Dr. Sylvia Earle and other people like that are our leaders in, th- in this type of thinking. Now that we now that we're realizing that we've we've succeeded to some extent with some of those problems, now we have problems that we can't see that are not so tangible, not so palpable, but still very real. You know, climate change, toxics. Just just yesterday, uh, a uh, body released. Uh, it was on the front pages of the newspaper. Um, the, the there's a big problem of 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 chemicals uh, in our in our culture in our society and we don't know it and they're causing cancer and we needed something about it but it's not so easy to see these things so so overfishing climate change toxics um, these are the issues that we need now to to work on but you're right in the 70s I became first aware of the environment through earth and other things and um, but but we now need to renew our vows to clean up the environment well of course Stuart Brand, the great Stuart Brand, yeah. and, and he recognized that winning the, the book prize, of course. Yeah. 
But, you know, I was also very interested, before we continue with this conversation, that you obviously were enjoying your reading, enjoying your studying, and you did mention in your biography Benjamin Franklin and Abraham Lincoln. Very briefly, what was it that led you down that road? Well, they are both remarkable people. I mean, Benjamin Franklin, one of our most interesting founding fathers, was was characterized by his practicality. He didn't, he was, he talked about avoiding dispute, you know, people who were disputatious. He was, he didn't want to waste time in long discussions. He wanted to produce results. You can see this again and again with his bifocal lens, his stove, so many examples of his work. Uh, it was driven by practical things. And, um, and he's just a, a, a very wise guy. And, and really what, what links both Benjamin Franklin and Abe Lincoln is their, is their wisdom. Both of them are extraordinarily uh, wise. Now, they're also both ambitious. Abraham Lincoln particularly, very, very ambitious. He went through an extraordinarily tough childhood, lost his mother when he was nine, almost certainly had to help his father build his mother's coffin. Um, and, uh, um, and yet out of all that, he went on uh, 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 and went on to this amazing uh, career and then held the country together um, and stopped the, the South from seceding uh, during the Civil War. An extraordinary guy. So Ben Franklin and Abraham Lincoln, I looked at them both as examples of well, well-led lives of, of two people who thought through what they wanted to do, made mistakes but kept correcting, kept their, kept their eye on, the, on what they wanted to um, accomplish, and and died basically happy. Both of them, uh, I mean, uh, Benjamin Franklin died of natural causes. Abraham Lincoln, of course, was killed by John Wilkes Booth. But they both died in a sense, um, and, and I, and I, I, you know, I mean this sort of in, very seriously. They both died in a sense happy. They didn't, they didn't, they didn't had nothing to regret. They lived full, accomplished um, uh, uh, lives, and, and I just have the highest respect for them both. I uh, totally agree with that. I would concur very well researched on Franklin in particular. And of course the amazing thing about Franklin, Chris, was that up to the 1920s he was still becoming quite a controversial character. There were still scholars out there who were really bashing him. But, you know, one of the things that always struck me about Lincoln was his his statement on having a wet bath, being able to look at yourself, criticize yourself, understand yourself and see how that you come over uh, as a public figure and being able to recognize when you're doing something right and you're doing something wrong. And I think that's what was so profound about Lincoln. Yeah. And maybe that's something that we are dearly missing in leaders today in, in the way that they're working both in business and and social arenas you had mentioned this before but you did and of course with your administration uh, you clearly learned a lot about public administration on that uh, course at university Mm -hmm. but i was interested that you did work with the jimmy carter's administration Mm -hmm. in energy advisory now what was the correlation what was the sequence in your career then from that aspect well 
after Harvard, I joined Booz Allen, where I where I worked first on 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 uh, defense issues and what came out of my naval background. But then segued into energy policy, and by working hard and and uh, I, I became an energy consultant. And from then I went to the to Cap using Harvard connections, went to Capitol Hill to work for a, a senator, Senator Charles H. Percy. Spent four years uh, with him. Uh, you know, passing uh, legislation to do with uh, with energy issues, and and then I went to work for Jimmy Carter at, at EPA as uh, chief of staff for the administration, deputy administrator of EPA, and that was fascinating. And then, of course, I was kicked out of that. I was a, I was a political appointee, and like all the, all the political appointees in 1981, when Reagan defeated Jimmy Carter, I was kicked out of EPA as as all political appointees uh, uh, are, and that's when I joined the National um, Audubon Society. So basically, I was just, um, uh, I was being, um, you know, I was being very entrepreneurial and looking for opportunities to use my skills and and uh, jumping from job to job and having the time of my life. Let me ask you, if I may, at that stage, is it becoming apparent to you and yourself that you are now moving towards the devotion to nature, to film production, possibly? Well, not film production. I hadn't, at that point, I had knew nothing about filming, but I was very clear to me that um, I wanted to do something with, with my life that was useful and, and, if you like, ennobling. And I'd become more and more conscious of the need to think through what I wanted to do so that when I eventually came to the end of my life, I could be satisfied that I'd done something useful and meaningful. And so and I began to see that energy policy, energy conservation, conserving of resources, uh, cutting out waste, um, getting off the our oil gluttony, all those things, um, cleaning up the environment, uh, saving wildlife, uh, 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 helping endangered species, all those sorts of things uh, became very important to me. And so, uh, but at this point, I hadn't met Ted Turner. So I hadn't yet gone to television. Only when I met the great Ted Turner in my early 30s, and about 1983 or so, uh, that's what changed my life from still working in environment, but changed my life from being a policy wonk to being a film producer. And of course, 1994, as in my notes, you were honored with the Frank G. Wells Award from the Environmental Media Association. So clearly now that you are on the track, you're yeah. on the road. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. And moving forward, we're now 10 years later, 2004, you join the American University and, and you are uh, clearly now in involved in film, very established. Now, you are producing, you have some 300 films behind you. You're going from a politically led environment, you've gone through the whole EPA arena, you've, you've worked in government, now you're in academia again. Now, now, how does that work in your mindset? Well, it's, it's fascinating. I mean, the thing about academia is autonomy. It's amazing how autonomous professors are. No, by autonomy, I mean that you can do what you like. You know, don't have to show up in the morning at 9 o'clock and leave at 5. I mean, you are really your own boss. And uh, really, the, the people who, in a sense, control you most are your students because they assess you. They do student evaluations. And if you don't, uh, if you're not a good professor, um, that soon becomes apparent and, and, uh, and it, you know, it'll hurt you. So um, the the wonderful thing about academic life, um, David, is is that you can not only teach, 
which only takes up a relatively small amount of the week, uh, you can not only teach, but therefore do other things like write books, like make films, like run non-profit companies. So I do, I wear a lot of hats now. I serve on about 14 different boards of non-profits. I run the McGillivray Freeman Films Educational uh, Foundation. I run run with Sandy Cannon-Brown, a film company called Video Takes. So I'm very, and, you know, I, and I've, I've written this book, Shooting in the Wild. So I'm, I'm very busy, and I, and I do stand-up comedy on, this, on the side as well. So I'm very busy. <laughs> and the great thing Good about Lord. academic life is it allows you to do lots of different things. I, I was about to ask you the question, do you ever sleep? But I don't think I will ask you that because I never do. So we sound as busy as each other. But now, the only question I would ask you, two questions. You know, when I have programs with experts in diverse fields and I talk to professors in in academia and I talk to scientists as well would you agree with me that possibly part of the problem that we're having at the moment in not being able to communicate thoroughly the urgent and severe problems that we have in our oceans in our general environment is because sometimes uh, people in academia people, scientists, are, are in their own cubicles, and it's very difficult for them to communicate outside of that mindset. You know, that's a very, uh, a very good point to make, uh, because too many scientists are not very good communicators. This is why uh, people like the great and late Carl Sagan, what, no, Carl, what's his, I've, oh boy, I'm not saying his name, uh, Carl uh, uh, I do know who you mean. Yeah, Carl Sagan um, was so good, um, and, um, and Isaac Asimov, and people like these. These are these are brilliant PhD scientists who know how to communicate. They're very rare. They're often very looked down on by their colleagues, who uh, who uh, you know think that well, it's rather rather demeaning to to write popular books. You know that scientists should write only in jargon for their own kind. But but this is all wrong, and and and. St- and I think scientists have a duty to talk, to convey what they're learning, what they're discovering um, to the general population. And this is where links to filmmakers become so important, because the, when filmmakers and scientists uh, work at their uh, coordinate best and work together at their best, they can together communicate great uh, interesting information about what science is discovering, and, the, and we do need to encourage science. Oh my gosh, the 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 amount of pseudoscience sweeping the country, belief in astrology and belief in in uh, in uh, all sorts of things that have no basis um, in evidence is frightening. Um, and so, scientists who who are, will who base their thinking on evidence and 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 experiments are important. And so, filmmakers like me need to work with them. And and in fact, we depend on them because they do interesting things that we need to convey in, in our in our films. So, um, so your, to your point, David, about are they are filmmakers, are scientists, uh, rather, um, you know, a lot of them are they uh, stuck in their in their offices and working away and not communicating well? The answer is yes, and filmmakers need to help them get out. Well, I I totally agree, and um, 
You know, I think that there is a huge need at the moment to be able to provide a translator, a middleman, as it were, between the scientific community and the general public. And, and I'm sure that to a great extent that the work that you produce uh, acts in supporting that because mm -hmm. uh, goodness only knows our degradation of climate and many other areas in our world are really quite severe and, and we need yep. that. But I'm going to look at your book and examine your book with you in the latter part of this program program because yep. I, there's also a downside to anything is there not yep. and I think mm -hmm. that you talk about that yeah you are already an established environmental and wildlife film producer and as I said in my notes I'd like to draw a line in the sand here when you're looking at shooting in the wild you're charting the emergence of of this genre how has that changed? Obviously, we've had these wonderful BBC programs now for some 20 or 25 years. Nevertheless, you would be the man to talk to to clarify how that genre has changed since yeah. perhaps 1970 and today. Yeah, well, it's changed in that in the old days... Um, there was much more abuse of animals to get the shots. Um, there was much more deception and fabrication. If you want a shot of a of a of a bobcat hunting down a rabbit, you might put some uh, put put a, uh, a filament, invisible filament, around its leg uh, to, uh, to so you could film it. You, you put animals, uh, predator and prey, in the, in a in a enclosure. I mean, there's a lot of cruelty and abuse hidden from the viewer uh, in in the making of these films, and this is not. Uh, not good at all. If you go back even further, back to the 1920s and 30s with people like Frank Buck and the Johnsons, I mean, people would be shocked at what went on. I mean, goading lions to attacking and then shooting them dead yes, yes. Uh, to show the bravery of the of the filmmaker. It, it just, uh, you know, by today's standards, we would just uh, find this repellent and disgusting. Coming up a little closer to our era, we've got people like uh, Jeff Corwin and the late Steve Irwin and Timothy Treadwell and others who love to get in front of a camera and uh, and uh, get up close and personal with animals. I don't think this is very good. I, I, I think animals should be left alone more because when reptiles like uh, crocodiles and snakes get grabbed at, uh, you know, they, they fight back. And of course, this makes great television, but it's not necessarily the good, the, not, in the, not very good for the, well, good for the animals. Is that not indicative, though, uh, Chris, of the sensationalization and possibly the reality TV that we see today? It, it somewhat staggers me that these gentlemen, and I'm sure that they are amazing individuals, and of course some of them have died in their efforts. Nevertheless, as we're all fallen in this world, it's down to ego at the end of the day, and it, you do question whether what they do and what they present to the viewer has a real, despite the, the moral or ethical position, has a, has a real purpose behind it. Yeah, no, I, I think you. I think you're 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 quite right. I mean, I think that you know it's a money-driven system. Uh, television, uh, the networks, and so on. And uh, when when I'm hired uh, by a network to produce a TV show, um, no one talks about conservation. It's all about money. And um, and you know it's cheap. It's it's inexpensive to send out a a a, a, a young a young uh, person. Um, into the wilds and grab animals, and and it, it's 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 it is it is expensive and and very costly to to stand out a, if you go out and spend months trying to get a a shot of a of a of a snow leopard hunting down 
it's prey that takes time. But if you if you use um, animals from game farms or captive animals, um, you can do all this much quicker. You can film something in a in a half a day as opposed to uh, five weeks. And it, and and because money is so important, um, it's tempting therefore to make films in this in this easy way using captive animals, using a lot of deception, using fabrication, in a, uh, um, um, uh, staging scenes to make them look like they're authentic and genuine and wild when in fact they're not so um it's 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 um it's partly an ego thing and partly uh, driven by money, I think. Well, of course, there's a parity there, Chris, between uh, the old Hollywood studio system and bean counters in the, the major studios today. And, of course, yeah. you, you could talk to anybody from Sir Michael York uh, uh, downwards and, and they would certainly say uh, in the film community the artistic values, uh, the story structure development is decaying because the bean counters are really taking control. And I suppose yeah. that, that is as important important in your world as well. Well, yes. You know, when I was, when I first got on the television 30 years ago, I assumed that, that what I was getting into was the business of delivering programs to an audience. Simple. Produce programs and deliver them to an audience. But, you know, what I've come to realize is that was, that's naive and, and that broadcasting is not about delivering programs to an audience, but about delivering demographically desirable audiences to advertisers. Mm. And, and that's a, that produces a whole different type of program. Well, of course, now I, I had in my notes, I was going to ask you the question, who do you think w- was the greatest emerging commentator? I'm sure that you would agree with me that it would be people like Attenborough. David but, Attenborough but, is a wonderful but guy. More important to me, Chris, is I, I'm a story structure man. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's what I've been taught. What about the story writers in your genre? Who would you think are the best in this field? Well, the, the you know well, first let me just comment on 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 and agree with you, David, on the importance of storytelling. You know, when we make films, it's not about going out and getting a shot of a lion uh, on the on the Serengeti. Uh, but what is that lion doing there? Why is it there? What's the story? Well, who are the characters behind it? What is the character of the lion? It's all about storytelling. It's, this is so important, and this is what I teach at uh, the American University, uh, where I'm a professor. And um, so, storytelling, as you as you just pointed out, is it's terribly important, and I think some of the leaders in this effort now are people like Derek and Beverly Joubert and and David Clark, and mm. and these are names that most of your viewers won't know, but they are leading wildlife and environmental uh, filmmakers, Adam Ravitch, and and there, so there are people out there who are very sensitive to the need to tell a powerful and compelling story, and we need to do that more. We are going to move into shooting in the wild. Uh, just before I hit that, Chris, realizing that Freeman Films was very important to you, yeah. because we've already discussed some of the wonderful films that they made. Yeah. Uh, you are part of the Educational Foundation. Uh, very uh, briefly, the educational outreach on that, I'm interested in that. Yeah, very, very important. When we produce an, an IMAX film, and nowadays, you know, in a 3D IMAX film uh, costs about $10, $12 million, um, we, the outreach is critically important. So we produce study guides and speakers and 
books and magazine articles and obviously a website and all sorts of things. McGovern Fisherman Films is, is well known uh, for this. And so when 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 you so when a family goes to see one of our films like like uh, like Coral Reef Adventure or The Living Sea or Everest, anything like that, one of our films, they can also get a study guide and a teacher guide and buy a book and all sorts of other things to to cement the learning process. So what you what we're really doing here, David, is turning a film from a film into a campaign because all of our films have purposes to them. You know, to save coral reefs or to or to, or to stop uh, uh, to, to stop uh, uh, cl- uh, war- global warming. Um, and so um, we want to produce uh, uh, campaigns. Uh, the films are more than just films. The films are really campaigns, and that's what the foundation does. Shooting in the wild. Um, I chose this as I thought it was a wonderful uh, comment by Ted Danson, a major contribution to our understanding of the role mass media plays in protecting our planet. Now, you are writing this book as an insider. I'd like to know, just for the listeners, uh, I know, yes, you're inside of the industry. You are exposed to so many negative and positive aspects. Is there any other meaning behind that? No, I, d- I don't think so. I mean, it's just what I'm doing is pulling back the curtain on this world, this strange and colorful world of wildlife filmmaking, which means that I'm showing the daring, the bravery, the courage of the filmmakers who do it, who I've worked with for years. And I'm also showing the negative side, uh, the fact that the, the degree of manipulation and fakery and fabrication uh, that goes on. Let me tell you a little quick story. When I first brought back my one of my first films on grizzly bears and showed it to my wife, Gail, and she looked at it and she loved it. And there was a particular scene of a grizzly bear on a hillside stepping through a a stream and you could hear this water dropping off its off its uh, off its paws and and uh, when Gail, my wife, looked at this, she said, that's wonderful. I, l- I love that. How did you get that? How did you get the sound of that water dripping off the grizzly paws? And I had to admit that my talented sound guy had filled a basin full of water and recorded the flashes he made with his hands and elbows. He then matched the video of the bear walking in the stream with the sound he'd recorded. Well, my wife, Gail, was shocked. She was a Offended. I mean, she was outraged. She, she, she's called me a big fake and a big <laughs> phony baloney, you know, because I'd made a documentary which led her to expect authenticity and truth, and here I was faking it. Well, uh, and what I'm going to do there is there are several points in our notes, and I'm going to summarize them together because. What are the dangers, Chris? Uh, We see now these amazing films. Uh, I can sit in front of uh, an IMAX like The Living Sea with my 11-year-old daughter, and, and it's phenomenal. What are the drawbacks? What can I say to my daughter? It is, as in The Living Sea, we are looking at this incredible landscape, these incredible ocean animals, but the the problem is that most kids don't have the experience or the opportunity to actually go and experience that themselves. So is there a danger in 
providing something so uniquely creative and beautiful without actually giving them the downside and the real essence of what the problems are out there. Well, you know, this is this is a good discussion to have, and and you want to produce films that are inspiring and helpful and tell people what to do. You don't want to produce films that are numbing, which are which lead people to feel despair and gloom. And and you know, if your eleven year old daughter, if she watched a film like I've just described, a gloomy, gloomy, despairing film, she's not going to enjoy. It. She's going to switch up and watch reality and go and watch American Idol. She's not going to waste time in it. So producers like me who produce wild life environment we have to think about our audiences and what is going to make them tune in and pay attention and then take ultimately take action which is what of course we want that's why we make films so people will become aware of the issues and then take action by take action i mean vote a certain way put you know spend money on it volunteer their time things like that real actions that that help so i think um i think uh what you could do with your daughter is encourage her to be an informed viewer. Ask her, you know, what are you learning from this? What do you think about this? Do you enjoy it? I, you know, do you think that shot of that grizzly bear really, do you think that bear really was a wild bear? Or was it just a trained bear uh, and made to, made uh, through eating M&Ms, made to <laughs> roar and look angry? Yes. Uh, you know, what's really going on? So I think encouraging our children to be informed and knowledgeable and ask, and, and skeptical, skeptical. I mean, in a, in a, not cynical, but skeptical, just to, just to ask questions. I think is all is all uh, all good, and ultimately we want to get our eleven year olds, like your daughter, to uh, be concerned about the world and and the you know the, the all the problems we have, like climate change, like water, like like uh, the uh, not enough clean water for people, and like toxics in the environment, cancer causing toxics, and so you know we we want. To, we want your daughter to be to be uh, have a growing consciousness of the importance of these issues. That leads me to ask you on the other side of the coin. If you look at a wonderful film director, I've had the privilege of, of Jerry Zucker coming onto the program, and of course yeah. he's involved with Jerry Schubel at the Aquarium of the Pacific. Right. He is uh, currently making a film about sharks. Right. Uh, he's part of the scientific community. Right. His information is coming from the scientific community in clarifying and confirming and making sure that he's accountable in what he's providing in those programs. How do you do that, Chris? How do you make sure that everything that is being shown in a program, whether it's Alaska, whatever it's about, is uh, is clarified well, is evidenced, and that you have gained as much support as you can from the scientific community to make sure on the one hand that it's an amazing world, but on the other hand, we do have difficulties and this is why this film is accurate uh, and positive for you. Yeah, this is this is not easy because, uh, but but it is, it is important, and and we need you know we need to uh, you know I think every I think every film should have an advisory board of scientists. I think I think before people start shooting, they need to explain how they're going to get the shot, so we know they're not going to be irresponsible and and uh, and harass animals in getting the shots. I I think. Um, uh, I think um, uh, we need to think a lot more about the question you've raised. I mean, how do we produce films that are scientifically responsible, and how do viewers even know that they are scientifically responsible? These aren't easy questions to to answer, but we do know that we need uh, we do need to work. Uh, as filmmakers and scientists need to work closely. We need to check things, double check things, make sure we don't talk loosely, uh, uh, and make sure the science we convey is is accurate, and teach people the scientific method which is to to, 
to th- to to put put out a hypothesis, test it, and not believe anything until there's the until uh, there's the evidence for uh, for it. And of course, this is really talking about the essence of your book. Yeah. Um, n- not only that, but you're talking about the morals and the ethics and the, and the yeah. problems that you see in the industry. Yeah. Uh, is this going to be uh, a standalone book, or are you going to be following this up, Chris? Well, I think for the minute it's a standalone book. It's called Shooting in the Wild, uh, published by Sierra Club Books. It's out now in bookstores uh, now, and it looks at the the, the characters uh, behind wildlife films. That they're, they're, they're daring, they're bravery, as I said before. It's a, it's, a, it's a fascinating book. It's full of stories about wolverines and dolphins and whales and bears and, and, and wolves. People will find it. The story is fascinating. It's not a, a boring book at all. It's full of fascinating, compelling characters and animals. Um, I think uh, people will, uh, will, uh, you know, will be more, after reading, will be more conscious that often audiences are deceived and misled by these kinds of uh, films. Um, they will realize that often wild animals are harassed and disturbed during the during filming. They'll also realize that that conservation is not always advanced by these uh, these um, by these films. Um, they'll become much more conscious of manipulation and um, and staging. Um, and um, so I think the book is going to do a lot of good. It's going to, it's, as I say, pulls back the curtains on these films and shows what is really going on behind the camera. And I think people will be shocked. In the final two minutes of the program, Chris, could you give me some memories? I know that you've worked with wonderful film actors from Robert Redford to Paul Newman, obviously with uh, Ted Turner in the background. What a wonderful start to your career. But could you just comment on that in these final two moments? Yeah. And and also, let me just ask you in that, giving me the greatest memories of your childhood and and your life. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, the the, 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 the the celebrities I've worked with, and I've worked with lots of them, what's amazing about them is how often they are not, they don't have fragile egos and come with large entourages of, of large you know, teams of supporters and hangers-on. No, they are it's amazing how often Robert Redford, Ted Danson, uh, Meryl Streep are typical of this. They come by themselves, and they're very serious, and they want to do a good job, and they want to host the film well. And, uh, and you know, they are serious, well-informed, excellent people. It, you do occasionally find a celebrity um, who is selfish and self-centered, but that more often, much more often is the reverse is the case. They're terrific, um, terrific um, people. And I think my greatest memories, I think, are going to places like Alaska, Tahiti, all over the world filming, seeing these incredible animals, um, uh, bearing witness to what they do, how they live, the threats that, that face them, and then going back and making films that help people uh, protect them. So my memories are about the good that these films, uh, these films can do. And I have to, of course, uh, Chris, refer you to, to the notes at the end. And I, I looked at this uh, quotation and I thought it was wonderful in your final statement, ha- uh, having read this. The sea washing the equator and the poles offers its per- perilous aid and the power and empire that follow it. Beware of me, it says, but if you can hold me, I am the key to all the lands, the great Ralph Waldo Emerson. So 
Does that remind you of how you began as a child, seeing that roaring sea in those on that southern coast of England? Yes, I think it does. It's a beautiful quote. Emerson was a, was a great a great person, and I think if he was alive today, David, um, he would enjoy this conversation, and he would want people like you and me um, to 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 be pushing uh, for greater awareness of environmental response of our environmental responsibility, and um, and I, I dare to say that he would give me a very good blurb for my book, recommending people read it. <laughs> Chris Palmer, it has been a really a great privilege to talk to you today. I wish you so much luck with your book. Uh, it's a wonderful read, and I hope that our listeners will will run out and get that. I, I really do hope that, uh, that you find huge success. David, thank you so much for having me on the show. I really appreciate it. It's been great to talk with you. Thank you. And to our listeners, I hope you too have uh, enjoyed this program as much as I have. It's been a very informative uh, time with Chris Palmer. You can gain information on this and any other program in the series at davidgibbons.org. Meanwhile, wherever you are in this world, good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. David Gibbons in discussion welcomes listeners' comments and viewpoints at its blog at davidgibbons.org. This programming is supported by organizations and firms in the private and public sectors. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.